Welcome to the Exhaust Notes Podcast. What is good, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Exhaust Notes Podcast. My name is Nick Ingvall. I am with my guys, Todd Yates and Roat Maholtra, to talk about the one, the only drive to survive. It's the reason we're here. Let's be honest. Let's call spade a spade in the sense that I am part of what I famously called out as a new generation of 33 million new viewers, listeners, whatever you want to call it. And that's, this is the gateway. This is the uh, gateway drug to this new habit that we've all picked up. And yeah, I think enough of the formalities. Let's just get into it because I think we got a lot of meat on the bones, so to speak for this episode. Todd, how are you doing though? Living the dream. And in about four or five hours here on Pacific Coast time, it's going to be race week. Very true. Very true. All right. So before we get into the episode, one sentence takeaway, your thoughts, feelings on Drive to Survive season four. Bro, you go. Okay. This is a true story, except for the parts we made up. Shout out to Inventing Anna, because you've invented a punchline to describe Netflix's other original programming. Yeah. Todd, how about you? I never thought Will Buxton could turn into John Madden announcing football, but to be the fastest driver, you have to win the race. Oh man. Uh, so I don't have, I don't have quite the, uh, I, mine won't be as laughable because I walked away from this thinking, how the hell do you not talk about Kimi Raikkonen and his final season in formula one in the entire 10 episodes that you recorded? What? I think this, I, I think I have an answer to this, right? You're catering to a new crowd. So why invest in somebody that's essentially on the way out? I agree with you, Nick. Like he should deserve at least a half of an episode. And it was really startling to see a lack of Sebastian Vettel, a lack of Alonso. But one of the themes that I kind of picked up on this season in particular, where they just kind of hit us over the head with it in terms of a hammer approach of this is a new generation. This is a younger generation. This is where our content, this is where our perspectives are going to shift. I think with the exception of Lewis, maybe the oldest people that have been given a protagonist kind of vibe have been Daniel Ricardo and Carlos Sainz, who are, in my mind, two sides of a same coin. But we can touch into that a little bit later. But I think that's why we're not getting the old guard as much, because this is a young person's game or a young man's game. And yeah. Uh, that's definitely a good The point. crazy part is, yeah, no, it is. They, they, they really did hit you in the face with the this is the new school of formula one. And I guess they portray like Lewis and Vettel and Alonso as the old guard. Yeah. But I mean, they, they, what does Max qualify as then he's been oh. in formula one since he was 17. He's now 24. That's kind of old guard ish. Yeah. To, to quote my favorite Britney Spears movie, he's at a crossroads, right? He's not yet <laughs> a man, but he's also not yet a boy. He's no longer a boy. And I think kind of using the whole four seasons as a retrospect, I'll tell you what Max Verstappen is. He is the antagonist because in season one, he is the reason why Daniel Rick leaves Red Bull. Rightfully or wrongfully, I can't say because I wasn't familiar with that season, but that was the impression that they gave. In seasons two and three, he is ultimately the biggest downfall to Pierre Gasly's success at Red Bull because ultimately Pierre Gasly cannot get to Max's level in that car. 
And because of that, he gets demoted to Red Bull. He has his own redemption arc, but at the same time, he will never probably see that Red Bull seat again because he is not Max Verstappen. And as we know in season four, he Max Verstappen is kind of the omnip, uh, the omnis smoke monster from Lost, where you don't see him, you just hear him. And ultimately, he ends up winning this season. But at the same time, like, that's what he is. He is a necessary evil. And I am really going to be interested to see how he gets perceived with the newer generation of viewers. Because if I'm going off of this, and granted, I haven't seen the last 10 minutes of the last episode of this season, I would think that's your villain. That is ultimately going to be your new measuring stick going forward. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely been painted as the villain. I guess I will throw out this question for both of you. Max, you know, doesn't want to be on this show, right? Has not done any action. You know, everything that includes him is basically B-roll from other interviews and, you know, other happenings that are going on the track. Do you think that that's actually his decision or do you think that that's part of the story arc that Netflix is trying to push with, with the whole thing? Because with him being kind of antisocial towards Netflix, it adds to his, you know, villainous kind of over looming darkness. Yeah. Yeah. John, go ahead. Cause I just filibustered in the last one. No, no, I, it, it, he's like, I don't think there's much like, you know, at play there because he's like come out and said multiple times, like, I don't want to be a part of Jack to survive. They like, d- d- uh, you know, reality show the hell out of F1 and I don't want to be a part of it. Whatever they, whatever I, he's like, he said something like, whatever I say in the show, they're going to twist it for whatever narrative they have. And he's like, I don't like those kinds of shows in general. So, like, why would I want to be a part of one? Which I respect that. And yes, we all know that they like Kardashian the hell out of the, the seasons. And we'll get into the, the details on that later. But I don't think he's, it's like, you know, Netflix or box to box film saying like, Oh yeah, we're not going to give him as much airtime or we're going to project him in a certain light. I think he does enough of that on his own. If you pay attention to F1 and I don't think that they did anything uh, too drastic about portraying Max in a certain way. Like his actions on track speak for themselves and we all feel a certain way about it. Shout out Aaron. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah I think you know good for him to not participate but come what may it's only going to look it's only going to appear as how you appear on track in that sense I'm just going to say this he has arguably the best talker in the entire sport as his mouthpiece and when we did our comparisons of what does Red Bull remind us of from a pop culture American lens I use the analogy of Brock Lesnar and Paul Heyman for our wrestling fans. Brock Lesnar is a suplex machine. He is this transcendent athlete slash warrior. He's had success in both the WWE and UFC. He's not as strong of a talker, but he doesn't need to be when arguably he has the greatest manager ever because Paul Heyman more than makes up for it with his mastery of a language, with his manipulation of the people around him. And that is exactly what Christian Horner did. He basically gave a masterclass on how to break bad, like, you, when you think of Breaking Bad, you may think of Heisenberg. I think of Christian Horner in season four because this is an entire arc of him planting seeds of discontent in almost every single episode with the most random of people just saying, hey, man, Mercedes sucks. Lewis sucks. 
we should be winning. We are the better thing. So I get it. I mean, it's a shrewd play. Maybe I'm giving Max a little bit too much credit for thinking this way, but if you've got Horner there and Horner's greatest strength is his mouth, use it. So then he can take on all of the psychological warfare that we'll touch on because this was definitely, in terms of drive to survive, it was more principle to survive because I think this was probably the most focused we've ever been on the team principles than we have the drivers. Hell, I mean, both of the team principles, kids and wives, play prominent parts in the story this year, which I don't think we would have ever predicted going into season one. I thought that was reserved for Spice Girls only, actually, yeah. Spice it up your life. <laughs> okay. Tangent, because I was talking to one of our listeners about this, because one of my cousins loves our show. He says he listens to it anytime he's in the car, but then he said, my car recently hit a deer, so I don't have a car. So it looks like he may not listen to us for the foreseeable future. But my whole frustration with the Spice Girls is you had four girls that were named after a personality trait, sporty, baby, scary, posh. The fifth one was a genetic trait. You're like, we couldn't come up with anything, so we're going to call it Ginger Spice. So that further leads to the criminalization of the redheaded people that some people have say have no souls. I can't make that comment. I have not plenty of friends that are gingers, but I digress. Thank you for giving me the platform. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting to see the wives in, and even the girlfriends, right? Like, I think it's, uh, it's either episode nine or 10 where you kind of get to see Gasly and, and, uh, Latifi and or Ocon and Russell, like you get to see a little bit more into their personal lives uh, in, in a way that I, I don't remember seeing that before. Right. Like there's always like the pan shots of like who's who's in the, you know, in the garage cheering on. But there was definitely more, you know, intentional footage of significant others in this in this season, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Like that whole scene with George and his girlfriend at yeah. dinner. Yeah. And, and like walking around and uh, I don't know. It, I think it added a little flavor to the show, but like we just had, and this is jumping ahead and maybe giving it to overarching thing, but we just had the most dramatic, at least you can say best, you can say worst, whatever you want to call that season, but the most dramatic season of F1 that I can remember at least since like the early two thousands or, you know, mid two thousands, you don't need to like, there was enough content there, right? You don't need to be like, oh, here's George eating sushi with his girlfriend. And I'm sure she's lovely. Good for her. Uh, but like, I don't need to see that. So yeah, I'm going I'm, I'm to throw a curveball to that. And my rebuttal is I do actually want to see Yuki eating smashed peas. Fair. Okay. <laughs> but I don't want to see Yuki being like, I got to go poop and then come back five minutes later and be like, I just had a good poop. Like, <laughs> All this tells me is while he may have the body of a five-year-old, he also clearly has a temperament because Yuki Sonoda <laughs> is a big toddler come to life. And I'll say something to your point, Todd, about the Kardashianization, if you will, of the sport. I think Netflix is true. They know that the best way that they can find success is not only make a show for people of varying degrees of fandom about the actual support, but also the significant others we share a couch with. So that's where it kind of does that. I will say the one thing I noticed through every episode, without fail, there were two things. One was the obligatory montage of the pit crew, like doing calisthenics, like every episode. If you look at it, there's like a quick 15 second supercut. So I'm similar to me anticipating some sort of barstool sports article about who has the hottest 
girlfriend, I also anticipate who's got the fittest support staff in Formula One. <laughs> Second thing, and I think this is something that they've borrowed from Selling Sunset, which is another Netflix show. They were very particular this year of taking the principal figure of each episode, putting them in a different activity that has nothing to do with Formula One. So in this case, sushi with a girlfriend for George, Gunter Steiner climbing a mountain, and essentially having somebody else in that party be an impromptu reporter and just say, hey, how are you feeling about plot point A? How are you feeling about plot point B? And I get it. Like, you are trying to bring new people into this, and maybe we have almost phased ourselves out in terms of being the primary audience for the show because we've already gotten addicted to the drug. But I'm really interested to see if we have a Drive to Survive season five, is it going to be continually hand-fisted or are they going to reward the audience's intelligence and give us a little bit more of the technical stuff? Because one thing I will say coming into episode one, this was probably the most strategy I've ever heard during a Formula One drive to survive season. And it makes sense because the culmination of the last race is a strategic masterclass of, okay, this is what went wrong. This is what could have gone wrong. Whether that's true or not, I will defer to Todd Yates because he's really frothing at the mouth to kind of get at. But this is, I guess, the dangerous game we play whenever we get into the world of reality TV. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to go too hard too quick. You know, get it over. No, I want. I think we should maybe kick into. Unless Nick had a point there, uh, maybe we should kick into your episode reviews since you went crazy on the notes, and then I'm sure Nick and I will have um, chime in points for each each uh, episode there. So, like Todd mentioned, because I'm weird, and ultimately, this is, I guess. An homage to both Organized. Uh-huh. You're organized. Uh, organized. I don't know about that. One of my favorite columns growing up was the Bill Simmons running diary. And say what you will about Bill Simmons, I kind of like that format. So I kind of tried to do something similar, but in a less abridged tone for all the 10 episodes. So I'll just start us off with a couple of the episodes. First one was episode one. The big thing I thought was really funny was the montage of the team principals. Like it's almost a roll call of this is Gunter Steiner. He likes to react to things blowing up in his face spectacularly. This is Matteo Bonato, who last season spoke perfectly good English, but has decided now to embrace only his mother tongue to add a layer of interest that we previously didn't anticipate from him. Uh, we also realized that Gunter Steiner is a bit of a narcoleptic because he wants Christian uh, Horner to make sure Toto Wolf doesn't sleep at night, like he currently does because of his predicament. Um, then it came down to the fact that Christian Horner is not an analytics guy because he comes down to the fact that racing is a gut thing. It's not about the numbers, which I find hilarious because anytime you look at this sport, anytime you look at any sort of driver debrief, what is it? It's pouring over spreadsheets. It's pouring over gaps, trying to figure out what that marginalization is happening to your team and how to reduce that because as Will Buxton is quick to point out in almost every single episode of this season, Formula One is, if not anything else, a sport on the margins. And then, yeah, I, last thing I would say is everybody loves Yuki. Like, there's that moment where Yuki's just walking down a pathway and Checo Perez, Daniel Ricciardo, very established racers are like, oh, my God, it's, it's Yuki. Yuki's right there. He's so cool. He's so short. <laughs> and lastly, I think this is the origin story of Christian Horner as a supervillain. So thoughts on that first episode. Go ahead, Todd. Oh, no. Okay. So this, <laughs> this one set the tone for the whole season for me that basically what we were going to get 
is intermixed in between people cursing and Christian Horner saying F Mercedes and, uh, you know, Toto kind of looking like a smug German on camera. The most of the what we were going to get was panning shots of people walking down the paddock. And I think it was especially bad in the first episode. I don't know why, but it was like just like you just mentioned, like, oh, Yuki walking through the paddock. Look how short he is. Here comes Pierre Gasly walking through the paddock. Here's Lewis with a crazy ass outfit on. It was just that. Like, I, I don't know if that set the tone for me. And I was just like, oh, OK, I see what you're doing here. We're getting a season of B-roll. No, and that was just it goes to the point that you both had mentioned in previous episodes in this one. How many episodes or how many races did Netflix actually go to this year? Three. Like you have to get the B-roll because ultimately this is a nature documentary without the exciting part of animals killing each other. It's just the waiting and like the humorous overtones every now and then. I mean, I think that's the that's the interesting thing is like I didn't even think about it the difficulties of filming throughout the pandemic until you mentioned it before we started recording, which, you know, whether they are at three or four races or whatever, obviously they weren't at all of them or they weren't in full capacity at all of them. I think that, you know, like the, the race, the race fan in me is, is like, to your point, Rowett is, you know, like, this isn't this isn't feeding my soul, right? It did the first few seasons because it was a way for me to bring other people in to the sport with me. And I don't necessarily feel that way now, although from a creative standpoint, I completely understand the setting up of Christian Horner as, you know, the evil overlord villain of Red Bull and, you know, Max being kind of the you know, the, the, the like true villain of the sport in the way that they want to position him. But to Todd's point, like he also is, you know, he's pretty vocal on the, on the radios, you know, like, and he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt the way Yuki does throughout this season in, in like what he says on the radios. Right. Um, but I think the, the setup and the, the B roll, like, you know, I'm thinking of this as like, if you made a six hour documentary, you know, this is really how you would set it up, right? Like, you know, it's it's broken into into episodes of 30 to 45 minutes or whatever they are. But from a creative, you know, like storytelling aspect, I respect it as much as I'm fe- feeling the Kardashian. What, what did you say? Kardashianized? Kardashianization. Kardashianization. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think you, I think you, you know. Word. You made a great point about the the significant others on the couch when you're watching this. Like the things that I think are really interesting are going to be the B-roll, are going to be way, the way we expand into these characters' lives, right? And I'm not, you know, I'm not one of those people that's going to say separate, you know, your personal life and your and your career or personal life and your politics or any of that, like you know, you are who you are as a human being, in my opinion, 24 seven. And I think that aspect of it is going to open up so many opportunities for these people, both the drivers and the rest of, you know, the, the pit crews and, you know, the, the support staffs and the, 
the reporters that are there. Like, I mean, there's just so many people that are getting more opportunities because of this. And, you know, to, to me, that's, that's the, it's, it's going to be a good thing for a lot of people. It's going to be a terrible thing for some people, but like, you know, getting to see all of those B roll and cinematic shots and like, Oh, I saw that person there. Oh, who is that? It just leads people into like being more inquisitive into further episodes, in my opinion, or expansion of this series into let's follow Pierre Gasly around for a year or, or whoever it is, that's going to get that first, you know, like dedicated spinoff. Spin yeah. That's funny you say that, Nick, because I feel like I wasn't expecting this to be like a documentary exactly on the season, right? Because we know what the the basis of the show is. But I have a feeling like my wife, one of her guilty pleasures is like watching Kardashian like shows like Selling Sunset. I'm pretty sure she watched that like just, you know, ultra dramatized garbage, whatever you want to call it. And I don't think that she would like this season. I told her, I was like, Oh, we're going to watch it together. And then Friday night came up and I was like, I'm watching it. She's like, well, I'm in the middle of another show. And I was like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to watch it then. But I don't think that after watching it, I don't think that the the content that was in this season would pull her in. Like, I don't think she cares about Susie Wolf and her opinion on Toto's race team, right? Like, I feel like they disconnected from the substance of the characters in the show. And we'll get into, like, what I said earlier or in the pre-show, like, what the most genuine moment of the show was. Um, But I feel like it was just kind of substanceless fluff. Like, who cares about George and his girlfriend eating sushi? Like they didn't say anything. George said he's impatient. Cool. That's not like gonna bring my wife in to be like, well, why is he impatient? What is it? Are they? Is that draw? Are they fighting? Like I don't know. That's just that's from my perspective. I feel like they missed the mark on bringing in that casual, significant other fan into like, oh, why is this interesting? Anyway. No, I mean, I think it makes sense. And as you were kind of talking, Todd, my thought was probably the biggest fault I have with the season, because ultimately I still liked it. It scratched my itch for getting drama in this new sport that I still am an infant in trying to learn more about. But I think they were just trying to do a little bit of everything and nothing stuck. So you've got this show that's kind of adrift from a narrative perspective because they don't want to be too technical, but they also don't want to be too fluffy. So what do we do? And everything just kind of felt like throwing spaghetti against the wall and saying, okay, what sticks? Because there are semblances there, and I'll use this to transition the next episode if you guys are good, which was essentially around Daniel Ricardo, Formula One driver, question mark? Because this is ultimately, in my mind, the greatest ambassador for not only the sport, but Netflix coming to terms with the fact that he may no longer have it in some regard. So I'll just quickly go through my bullet points from that episode, and then I'll defer back to you guys in terms of what you guys want to noodle on most. So the first thing I would say is Daniel Ricardo calls out an array of podiums and I just felt, hey, did he kind of channel his inner Nick Angle just one year early? Because somebody else on this podcast had mentioned that they expect McLaren to get a bunch of podiums and races. Um, the other thing we kind of touched on this last week as well is if you're watching this from a full character arc perspective, he left Red Bull because there was a promising young driver and now he's gone to another team with a promising young driver. Does he 
not anticipate things going to go a similar way because at this point, I know I've got two of the biggest Daniel and Rick guys in the business, but if we're just going off of the season alone, it seems like he made a wrong choice because Lando is only going to be improving. Uh, the other thing I thought that was really interesting about McLaren, and I thought this was probably one of my favorite episodes because it kind of harkened back to what we liked about Drive to Survive the first couple of years, was the fact that there was a very weird dynamic throughout the course of the episode, especially with regards to Carlos signs and them openly pining for him to come back. Where it's like, Carlo, come back. Like, what are you doing here? Like, don't go there. Go here. Make this right. Don't make that left. And then using that to juxtapose because... Once again, Ferrari is looking boring but good in the best way imaginable. And it kind of led me to this opinion that I think Carlos Sainz's greatest ability is his malleability because of the fact that he can kind of morph into whatever his team needs. He was essentially the straight man for Lando the last couple of years. And now on the Ferrari side, you see him kind of take more a front center stage of being the funny one, whereas Charles Leclerc is a straight man. And ultimately, I think what comes down to that creative disagreement, if you will, between Danny Rick and Lando Norris is they're both used to being the funny guy or the hot girl at the party. And they cannot coexist because they're essentially stepping on each other's corners from the personality wise. Lastly, I will say this. Yeah, this is Christian Horner really going for the MVP of the season. In this case, the most villainous person there is. Because once again, just sowing seeds of discontent. Hey, you, random passerby. Did I tell you how much Lewis Hamilton sucks? Oh, by the way, he also kicks puppies as well. So just like that type of tone and that type of imagery. Anytime Christian Horner comes on or Christian Horner comes on to this uh, camera. Thoughts? There's there's so much to unpack there. I, I think that's a great call though on um the very first thing you said, Daniel McLaren or Daniel Ricardo, F1 driver question mark. Like they hyped him up and hyped him up and like, oh, you know, seven time race winner, uh, you know, last of the late breakers, all this stuff, and then just immediately like well, I guess through that course of the episode, they kind of left it like, no, nah, he's not really that good. Like, or he's, you know, I think it, they, they went past like he's struggling to get used to the car. And they're just like, mm, we made a mistake signing him, Carlos. Like you said, Carlos, come back. Um, yeah, I think that I said this a little bit in the the pre-show. The thing that annoyed me about last season is the fake beef that they made between between uh, Lando and Carlos when they were teammates. And um, they were like the best of friends and still are. Uh, and they had kind of a real beef, not actual full-on beef, but they were uh, – it, it was a very awkward and uncomfortable situation there at McLaren for the better part of last year. And they had a lot of, I mean, they could have really leaned into that. And they just did it in the weirdest way. Like, like you said, like, oh, they're both the funny guy. But now Lando's trying to be the serious guy. And Daniel's trying to be the serious guy. Wait, who's the serious guy? Because they're both still cracking jokes about stuff. And they, they got into it a little bit more and later in the season. But it was like, I don't know. <sighs> It also pained me because they were like, hey, Danny Rick sucks. So I, that episode for me was a, a tough watch. It was weird that they even, you know, not to say that Danny Rick is not the face of Formula One for the Netflix 
fan, right? Or the drive to survive fan. Cause he absolutely is. He should be the face of formula one for everything. Maybe with the exception of Lewis. Right. But like, I thought it was weird that this episode, again, to, to, to your point, like almost like, you know, questions his, you know, viability as a, as a driver. And it just doesn't make any sense, but also it's, really the only way they could have, you know, not to jump ahead, but it's the only way they could have done it needing to do two episodes, basically focusing on Danny Ricardo. So. Yep. No, I think it's exactly that. And as a quote unquote funny person, it's always weird when you're not funny because people's natural instinct is, Oh, what's wrong. You're not cracking jokes. And like we too can have our moments of introspection, but I will say this, if they ever do a logo where there's a driver's silhouette, it should be Danny Rick in the same way that the NBA logo is Jerry West. Yes, there are people that are more successful than him. There are people that have had better stats than him, but there's just a certain gravitas that's associated with him. And I think to your point as well, Nick, like he was the perfect ambassador for the Netflix era. He's going to be a lot of people's favorite drivers from here on out, even though we essentially may have caught him at the latter part, if not leaving his prime. But it is interesting to me that they kind of did him dirty in this episode because he is the reason why this show is as successful as he was. He's charismatic. He's funny. He's what you would imagine your best friend would be like if he was a world-class race car driver. So, yeah, I think it is going to be interesting to watch this year without the Netflix narrative to see how do they get on because... I don't think Danny Rick is long for this world from a McLaren perspective because the way I'm anticipating Lando growing, it's only going to further that divide between them. But I also want to be proven wrong because when he is focused, there is still something to be said about the last of the late breakers like Todd mentioned, and that is what Danny Rick is. Cool. Uh, The next one was... This was a funnier episode because I can't even remember what the subject matter was, but I'll just go through my notes. First thing was the sweet skeet shooting transition montage where it was Christian Horner at a shooting range and then he would whisper whatever inconvenience Lewis Hamilton gave him that week and then it would cut to them shooting a plate in the sky. So that was interesting. Uh, oh, this was Monaco. Sorry. So now I get it. So one thing I will say, one of my new life wishes in life is to arrive at a Mediterranean island exclusively through boat because they just made it look cool on this. And I think it's something we should all aspire to have one day. One other thing was I thought out of all the pit crew montages, this was the best one. So kudos to you, episode three. You had the best pit crew montage. One thing I wanted to get your take on because you guys have been in this sport a lot longer than I have. The way that they sensationalize Monaco as being this crown jewel of a race, how it's ultimately Formula One at its best, it's pomp and circumstance. But every time I talk to actual Formula One fans like yourselves, it seems to be the least favorite race because essentially it's a procession because the street course is so narrow, there's no overtaking. It ultimately comes down to how you qualify. So let me ask you gentlemen this, is that a fair assessment or what are your personal thoughts around Monaco? I mean, I, I, I still think it's the pinnacle of racing, right? Like I love street tracks, you know, like even outside of formula one, right? I go into the long beach grand prix for many years. I, I think that I think with formula one too, like the other part of it, although it's not, 
it's not what maybe some people are used to or what they think about when it comes to racing. It came up a lot in this season and, and, you know, obviously in drive to survive as well, but the racing is so much, it's, it's, it's not even about passing on the track on most of these courses, right? It's really about the strategy that goes into it, the pit strategy, the tire strategy, you know, all of these things that impact whether or not a team is going to actually have a shot. And we see it a lot throughout, you know, all of this, and we'll get into it, you know, the next, the next episode, right. With, with, uh, Nikita Mazepin, but like to me, like Monaco is still kind of. It's like Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it really is. It just has a certain. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like you know, Staples Center, you know, formerly Staples Center, right? Um, Because you're going to have all the celebrities. You're going to have people interested in the sport that you know aren't going to show up at any other to any other event necessarily. Right. And it's such a spectacle, but I also think that that's, it's, it's as much as it might be over the top and, and, you know, like just completely beyond most of humanity's existence in terms of, you know, feasibility, it's also necessary, right? Because the people that are behind these cars that are worth, you know, millions of dollars are brands that are selling cars to these types of people, right? Ferrari selling cars to all these, you know, opulent, luxurious, you know, destination places. And the same thing with McLaren, right? Like a lot of these companies are, you know, Mercedes as well. Maybe, you know, it's kind of funny to think about it, but Mercedes on the list of, you know, manufacturers or, or teams that are there is kind of in a weird spot because they're like the most affordable, you know, maybe if, if you take out Renault, I guess, but you know, you don't think of it as in that sense, yeah, right? Like you don't think you don't ever think of Mercedes as being affordable, but like they're the cheapest of the of the cars that are like connected to the sport. And the sport really does still drive a lot of energy around the business of of selling cars. So I think that it's necessary. I do think that it's over the top, but you know, like it's just like Madison Square Garden. If you're a basketball fan, I think you should go see at least one game there. It's it's a it's a it's a bucket list. Yeah, it's a bucket yeah. list item. Todd, any thoughts? Yeah, you can you can see you know Serena Williams uh, courtside at Madison Square Garden and waving the checkered flag at Monaco. Um, going to Nick's point real quick about the car manufacturers, I think we think that way because they don't make Renaults here. Yeah. Like they are the Nissan of France, right? Actually, Nissan is owned by Renault. Um, they 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 are the like you know Toyota Camry type of car of you know Europe. Um, so I think they really do have a connection to like sell sell cars there. Uh, and Mercedes, I think on some level, yeah, they they have you know they have the hypercars, they have the supercars, and sports cars or whatever. So it is a it is a great point. But going back to the track and your initial question. Rohit, that race, the race itself is terrible. The event, the spectacle, as Nick mentioned, is amazing. Like you started off with, like it's probably one of the only races that you can get to by boat exclusively. And I thought one of the funniest scenes of that episode was like Christian Horner trying to act badass this entire season so far. And then he's just like, hey, can you take it slow and go around these yachts over here? And then we cuts to Toto and he's like, punch it. 
He's like, as fast as possible over the waves. Um, I thought that was really funny. That gave me a chuckle. But like the everything about that race is perfect because it is that opulent luxury. Uh, you know, women in bikinis on yachts. Everyone pulls up in a Ferrari, like Nick mentioned. Um, practice is is always interesting because everyone blocks each other, uh, and everyone gets mad about that. And they do talk a lot about strategy, and that's the interesting part of that race. And qualifying, that's probably the best qualifying of the entire season because it's a bumpy old street circuit in a weird Italian. I know it's not actually Italy. It's its own country. But uh, Italian street course that's maybe twice as wide as the cars are. And they're, as we saw in that episode, actually, they they are just – uh, like operating within the fine, fine millimeters and sometimes over the line like Charles Leclerc in that episode. Um, but the event itself, fantastic, amazing. It was an Ironman for a reason. The race itself is terrible. They need to do something about that. So track. really it is like the New York Knicks playing at Madison Square Garden. And if you want to fight me on it, you can mm-hmm. find me on Twitter at MadWatcher789. So is there anything else before we go to Monaco <laughs> or from Monaco rather? One thing I will say that they did and that they, I thought they were going to glaze over it because the episode wasn't really about McLaren, but oh, they sure got that dig in there about Lando lapping Danny Rick. I just, that one pained me because they glazed over so many important details in this whole season that it, like the reason Ocon won was Alonzo and he pretty much was just playing soccer in one episode. Um, and then Sebastian Vettel, Vettel's drive in Baku, which they didn't really go to, I don't think, but they did have episode or scenes from Baku and like what happened in that final, you know, Hamilton locking up or whatever. But they missed over so many good drama points in the show. But they're like, oh, yeah, just so you know, like this is totally trivial and doesn't really matter for the any of the point lines or plot lines, but. Here's Danny Rick getting lapped. No, I mean, I kind of got that feel last year because there was hardly any mention. In fact, there was more mention about it this season because, to your point, Todd, George Russell featured very prominently this year. Last year was the year where he replaced Lewis when Lewis got COVID. There was hardly any mention of that at all. But this is the year that I think they doubled down the footage from last year. And this is where I think they shouldn't let plot lines dictate what's an episode. But then again, I am sitting in a basement while the box-to-box filmmakers are shipping, or rather are sipping caviar in, or sorry, sipping champagne and eating caviar. But I digress. We'll go to the next episode, which I've just kind of subtitled, Have Gunther Grout His Groove Back, or How I Learned to Hate Nikita Mazepin. Guys, I am probably the most neutral around Nikita Mazepin, but even this episode made me want to just be like, this dude's a douche. Like, fuck that guy. So I will defer to my senior hater correspondents, Todd Yates and Nick Engvall, for a step-by-step blow-by of why do we dislike Nikita Mazepin. Todd, I'll give you the first act. No, I want Nick to go first because what I'm going to say is not going to be what you guys I mean, expect. It just is unfortunate that Haas was in a position where they had to take the sponsorship money, right? Like that's what it comes down to. If Haas wasn't trying to survive, you know, I guess I, I should back that up a little bit. Haas was performing fairly well prior to the last couple of seasons the car change, not not well, but better than last, let's say. Um, 
surprisingly better than what we expected for a new team to Formula One. But in order to, you know, give themselves a little bit more of an advantage on the upcoming season for 2022, they basically stopped developing the, the previous car and started working on the new version because there's a lot of new rule changes, which we've talked about in previous episodes. And because of that, they basically just needed money to, to cover the cost of competing last year. They weren't in any way competing. Like, I mean, they literally were not competing. They were just trying to finish races, make sure they got to the destinations and showed up for the races. And like, that's about it, right? Like, yeah, there's some practice that's going on. There's some, maybe some improvement from the young drivers. Cause they got two rookies in Nikita Mazepin and, and Mick Schumacher, but Essentially, this episode kind of gives you some insight into how much influence, you know, we, we joke about, you know, uh, you know, Daddy Stroll being the, the, you know, evil kind of villain character and coming in and, and buying a team and having his son placed. But really, Mazepin is like is exactly that. Right. Like it's a Russian oligarch family, like the, the money. Essentially, it, like in the episode, he's threatening to take it away unless they basically f- fix things from Nikita, Switch kiss cars. Nikita's ass, change cars with Mick. You know, like it's just it's really interesting. I say that. And I would counter myself to say that they did do a good job of explaining the mental gymnastics that go into being a Formula One driver. And they did it with arguably the worst driver in the field for the last couple of years with, with Nikita. Right. But even, even like by the time you're out of that episode, you're like, wow, it's kind of crazy how much like psychological stuff. And, and Will Buxton is a part of them telling this narrative and kind of explaining like the way these guys have to think in order to be competitive. But it was really Honestly, like this is probably one of my favorite episodes, but also because I love to hate it as well. You know, like it was just like, I don't want to see this as a part of the sport. I know it exists, but I'd rather not see it just plain and simple, like, you know, threatening to pull your sponsorship and your money in the middle of a race, you know, just tasteless in my opinion. Luckily we have the tasteful Todd Yates to take us home. So Todd, go for it. No, it's not going to be tasteful. Um, first, I want to say strongly and from the chest, F Nikita Mazepin. I am on record as being the biggest hater of this kid. He deserves to be out of the sport. <laughs> the player haters ball. We are here. Um, I, I say all that to say this was the best episode by a large margin. And it's because it was genuine about Nikita Mazepin. And he was genuine. And I'm giving this dude a compliment right now. He is not a likable person. He is not a good driver, as we, which I can't believe that they were, they were probably the harshest to Nikita out of, but well, besides Christian Horner and setting him up to look like a, a deep kind of an asshat most, most of the episodes. Yeah. They made him. In somehow, in some way, have kind of like a little rocky moment. And I know, and Rohan, I don't want to step on your toes and steal your thunder, so to speak. But that's a perfect pun for what you're going to say, Mr. Raincloud Reader. Uh, 
but they made him have like a little bit of a rocky moment in Sochi and it was believable and I liked it and I don't like Nikita Mazepin and but they were like you know oh they they played that crafty line from the race in um Bahrain like several times throughout the whole series like oh Nikita Mazepin's first F1 race lasted exactly three corners they played that in like several episodes um so I, I hate that as kind of an opposite way of saying the same thing Nick did. I hate that I like that episode because I hate Nikita Madison, but it was the best episode by far. The way I look at it, because like a good meteorologist, you always have to look at the sunny side of things. We have a career path for young Nikita because this Formula One thing is not working out for him. So I hope he embraces his true innate strength, which is meteorology, because the way he was able to be a rain whisperer or a cloud whisperer and get that intel before so many world-class racers who just chose to drive on their pure arrogance and not be one with Mother Nature like Nikita was in that moment. So, Danka. Nikita, even though that's not the thank you that I want to give you as a Russian, but it's close enough. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. And I will say that we were all kind of expecting the bumper to say, by the way, Nikita Mazepin is not going to be driving this upcoming summer, uh, this upcoming season. But who knows? Maybe that was already close from an edit bay perspective. But it will be really interesting to see what his legacy will be because he was not here for a long time i could make the argument he wasn't even here for a good time but he, it was a time to say the least for nikita mess maybe he's about to tom brady right. himself and Absolutely. unretire somehow from f1 <laughs> so you're telling me nikita mazepin is tom brady of formula one because i agree from a hundred percent perspective so. of being an asshole yes yes uh, Probably. Uh, so then from one asshole to one of the funnier people on the thing, on the grid itself, we have Daniel Ricardo next. And essentially, this is how Daniel Ricardo got his groove back. Once again, I'll defer to my two McLaren hosts over here. What did you guys make of the redemptive arc of Danny Rick's story this season? I mean, I think it, it had to happen, right? Like they set it up and they're, they're you know... Let's let's just compare it to the NBA. You You cannot let the truth, whether it's the truth or not, dictate whether Michael Jordan becomes a villain or not, because he is your bread and butter. So if Michael Jordan has a gambling problem, we're not going to talk about it. If Danny Rick is actually a closet asshole, we're not going to talk about it. So they did talk about it a little bit. So they had to do this episode and redeem themselves and, and put ben, Danny Rick back on the pedestal. Like he's just, I just don't see anybody else kind of being that person you know, with the exception of maybe Lando, right? But that's like what they're they're trying to like. They're trying to villainize two guys that, to Todd's point earlier, even in their most tumultuous time of a relationship, are yeah. laughing and joking with each other, with everyone around them, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, you know, that was one of my favorite races of the year. You know, just to see McLaren one two was amazing and. You know, I'm I'm glad that they they showcased it in a way that you know was redemption for Danny Ricardo. <laughs> Although I didn't feel like he really truly needed redemption to the levels that they played it up to. Yeah, that it was obviously the best race of the season for us Papaya fans. Um, but they still kind of dug in that like Daniel Ricardo F1 driver question mark. Because they were like, oh, like, 
Lando, don't don't race Daniel. Don't race. they made like a big point, and I know that in all realities, Lando probably had the pace to at very least race Ricardo in that race, if not overtake him and swap positions. Um, but they 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 made a big point to me at least showing that like oh maybe yeah it's a it's a McLaren one too but it very well possibly could have been the other way around and maybe it should have been in all reality but Danny Rick got a little luck but the one thing I want to talk about here is that they also talked about the crash between Lewis and Max and when Max ended up on top of Lewis's car thank god for halos because that really could have broken Hamilton's neck Anyway, they talk about how in the sprint race that Max won the sprint race, which is not true. Like, I'm fine with dramatizing. That's not a word. Dramatizing things. uh, And creating like these like fake beasts here and there or, you know, somebody like taking a line out of context that sounds worse about somebody than it is, i.e., most of what Horner said about Toto. Um, but they lit, like straight up said that Max won the sprint race that weekend and he didn't. Botas won. And like they I, I know they dedicated like an episode to Botas and his his drive his team switch. But like you just can't manufacture like, oh Max wins a race or a sprint sprint qualifying or whatever the hell they call it. it he didn't. Like he got second. And that bothered me more than probably anything in the series. No, I mean, I will say this. I don't think the time was right for Lando to take the crown, so to speak, from Daniel Ricciardo as the the jester. But I also kind of got a Game of Thrones vibe from this season, because to your point... This is a season where we've established multiple villains, i.e. anybody that's a father in Formula One. And we've also established multiple heroes like Game of Thrones. And I think Danny Rick had this resurgence that, depending on how you feel about him, was either overtly dramatized or perfectly captured. But I think, if let's say, if Danny Rick shits the bed in the second half of that season... I think we get the full treatment that Danny Rick's gone and Lando is the new crown prince and he's going to be Netflix's poster boy because they're essentially cut from the same cloth. So I'm happy that Danny Rick played the way that he did, drove the way that he did. And yeah, we can all kind of breathe a sigh of relief and probably talk about this next year when Drive to Survive Season 5 happens and we get to see did Danny Rick once again save his Formula 1 career. All right. So the next episode was the Williams one, and I'll be transparent. I got through like five minutes of this, and I was like, I'm over this. So you guys, please take the lead. <laughs> I actually thought this one was really interesting. As like a, a longtime race fan, you know, Williams is arguably top two or three, depending on, you know, how much personal feelings you let it get involved in the conversation. Basically, like, you know, the only the only team on paper that has more wins than Williams is Ferrari, right? So... um Right. That said, it was also, you know, I think necessary to showcase the Williams team changes because the Williams family is no longer involved. Um, And, you know, Sir Frank Williams passed away. So, you know, it was nice that they kind of dedicated an episode to Williams, even though 
you know, as a, as a, you know, speaking of the racing itself from last season, they just weren't competitive. It was rare that they even scored points. You know, they just, they, there weren't, wasn't a lot to talk about, um, but they did, they did actually pull like, you know, a lot of interesting stuff into the episode, but I can totally understand not watching it as well. Cause if you're, you know, you, you probably don't even remember anything about if you're casual, it's well, okay. no, you but you probably casual. don't, you probably, if you're not like <laughs> a diehard fan, you're probably not going to remember anything from Williams last year at all. Right. Like there's nothing memorable about last season for Williams, in my opinion, but I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Todd, what do you think? No, I, I think that's a great point. And like what Nick, what you started with is like the allure, at least at this day and age of Williams is Frank Williams and the team that he built and then sold and then rebuilt and then like dominated for almost two decades, like the, what, I don't know, mid eighties to like the, or like, yeah, probably early eighties to mid nineties. It was, it was Williams. Like they were innovators. They were at the top of their top of their game. The one, the most interesting line of the whole episode to me was Claire Williams talking about how formula was then when Williams was dominating and how it is now where it's basically, you know, Walmart and McDonald's and Starbucks and Amazon taking over the sport to be these mega corporations and these mega teams. And that just Williams can't compete in there. The one redeeming fact I had from that episode was the kind of the introduction of Yos Capito, uh, who's the new team boss at Williams. And he reminded me of, of, <laughs> of like, almost a cartoon character. He's, he's like that super happy go lucky guy. That's also going to cut your head off. Like he just seems, and I, I, I know of him a little bit from his world rally championship days um, and their, their domination there, but he almost seems a little lost, but he also is like, feels really ruthless in almost the way that they portray Toto to be. Um, It, it was, that was the best part of that episode for me was the introduction kind of explanation of who he is and where he's from and mm -hmm. why he matters. And, but he, it was just, he's like totally wired eyed and just staring and smiling, but like behind the eyes, he's like thinking about killing you kind of thing. Yeah. My man felt like he had two coffee pots too many right before that initial first day at Williams, but you know what? I respect it. And I'm interested to see what they do because while they don't have George Russell, they do have Alex Albon, who's shown to be a capable driver. And I'm wondering, do we see how bad of a free fall do we see Williams or do we think the unthinkable happens and we actually build on last year? Because the argument could be made that was probably Williams' most successful season in the modern era because of the fact that this was essentially George's admittance letter into the Mercedes University Finishing School. And as we know, in episode eight, he got it. But yeah, I'm interested to see how Williams goes, but I couldn't keep my attention for that episode, especially because I had the next episode queued up because this has this pod's two favorite drivers in the sense that we've got a Yuki Tsunoda extended clip. And then we've also got Esteban Ocon with a tasty little morsel of an epilogue. But yeah, let's just talk about it. Yuki Tsunoda is a big baby, but we mean that in the most delightful ways because he is essentially a man child case in point the bachelor pad where i don't think he's done a single day worth of laundry and i forgot who the driver was that was kind of serving as the narrator for this episode or the protagonist's interviewer but my goodness yuki you just keep doing things that make us love you and you do that so well that was yeah, that I mean, was uh liam lawson he 
currently drives an F2, for, and he's in the Red Bull camp, so it makes sense that they're roommates. I mean, that that was that was by far one of my favorite episodes, though, just because you get to see how young young these guys are, right? You know, very much like you, you are definitely making enough to just pay somebody to do your laundry. Like, just pay somebody to do your laundry, kind of, you know. But it's still just like, okay, cool, like, I moved into this, you know, random suburb, not even suburb, right? Small town in, in England. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, he even says the most boring place on earth or something like that, I think. And, you know, it's just, it's fascinating. And I, I think, you know, this is the part of this show that I really like is like getting to know these guys a little bit beyond, you know, the, the racing, right? Because my hope is that, is that, you know, these guys become, you know, much bigger than race car drivers, you know, like it's great that they're race racing, you know, I hope that they all get to win a formula one race. But to me, it's like, I think, uh, it, there was actually just a, a story on Pierre Gasly talking about like realizing that he's, he's got a, a responsibility to, you know, speak his truth a little more now that he's famous. And I think that's, you know, aside from, you know, the attention that it's bringing to the sport, I think that that's what I love about drive to survive is like, you can at least in some sense, get to know a little bit about who they are. And, you know, you get to see that Yuki is just literally a 13 year old boy, you know, mentality. And, you know, I, I just think it just, it just kind of brings some reality to it. Right. Like it's a reality show, but it's also very dramatized. And those, these are the, the episodes where you get to see some sort of truth about who these guys are. Yeah. hundred percent agree. Like I said about the Mazepin episode where it felt really genuine. This is another time that felt really genuine. Like we have this man child, as you both said, living in basically a college dorm, walking through sh shoes and food containers and clothes and, I would say beer cans, but I'm sure they are on that strict of a diet, whatever. And then he's just like, oh, for fun, I'm going to go drive my new NSX around this crappy little village and like do donuts basically, or like, you know, drive like your hair's on fire around. Roundabout. Yeah. <laughs> and he's practicing yeah. his turns in a supercar in some little village in England. Also um, moving to France it, it, in that it shows NSX. his. Yes. Right. <laughs> and walking out with like a box in the rain yeah. and his luggage and like stuffing it in a supercar. And he's like, all right, I'm going to drive to France, yeah. which really actually happened. He was struggling last year. They said he was disorganized um, and he, he wasn't being a professional about having a job in F1. And they moved him to France to live with or not. I don't know exactly with, but near the was it France or Italy? Because I thought the rumor was he moved in with the team principal, Franz Chost, who we kind of got an extended introduction to in this yep, episode. It was. It was exactly that. You're right. He moved to Italy with Franz Chost. I don't know if he was living with him, but near him or whatever. But like, yeah, I'm sure he drove through France. Yeah. So like, he basically was like, oh, I'm a, you're going to live next door to me and you're going to focus fully on F1 and you're going to work out every day and you're going to like get your engineering skills up to like understand how to set up the car properly. But this, this episode and the, the, the Mazepin piece I mentioned earlier is why I think people initially gravitated towards drive to survive because it calls back to that. And you've mentioned this several times, Rohit, um, the, the, the 
story about Daniel Ricardo in the first season and his pains at Red Bull and his like dilemma and his decision. And that felt like a real, and Nick just said it like a real moment or reality moment about who these people are at their core, not like what they, you know, do for a living or I, I keep talking about it, but George's George and his girlfriend eating sushi just felt like complete fluff and not integral to the story at all. No, uh, the comparison I'll make is in season one, we saw Esteban Ocon on a simulator and he closes his eyes and he gives you a lap for lap breakdown. Uh, I think it might've been the French track at that point. Compare and contrast that with the most ubiquitous sushi restaurant meeting we've all discussed in the last two years of George Russell and his girlfriend getting sushi at a lunch, uh, getting sushi for lunch at a premier London spot. But yeah, like there are certain editorial choices that I know you don't have access to the races, but if you have access to these drivers in off track situations, every single one of these dudes has that dedicated work ethic, except for maybe Yuki. And he's learned to kind of evolve into it because like most of us, he hates to train, but we realize that it's a necessary evil in our life to just kind of maintain a good bill of health, whether it be physically or mentally. So I had no issues with it. I will say as the resident Ocon fanboy, it was nice to kind of see that moment, but I'll kind of echo the sentiments of my co-host. Like there's so much more to that story. And if you can give me the penalty shootout that kind of hints at Fernando Alonso's contributions to the sport, you can at least give me a two minute montage of the defensive driver, uh, defensive driving masterclass that he had put on in that episode. So I don't know. It's very strange. Like, I wish we could have a conversation with the editors of this and just realize, like, hey, what were your constraints? Because clearly there were some certain guardrails that were put up that dictated what was showing what wasn't. But it feels very strange. What also didn't feel as strange was the aforementioned George Russell kind of taking over Valtteri Bottas's seat. What did you guys make of this episode? Because I thought... I had a good grasp of all the rivalries and all the friendships in Formula One, but I didn't realize things were as severe in terms of the beef as they are right now with Valtteri Bottas and George Russell. I mean, I don't know if it's... I'm going back to the previous episode. Go ahead. I just wanted one note on the, the previous episode. That was the other thing that really bothered me about this whole series was I already mentioned them lying about Max winning the sprint race in Monza. They completely glossed over the reason why Ocon won that race in 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 his little spot in the show. Like Alonso literally kept Lewis behind him in a much slower car for like ten laps, which allowed Ocon to stay in front and win. It was amazing, probably the best defensive driving we've seen in twenty years in the sport. And they just like, nope, we're just not even going to talk about it. Yeah, but I think it also kind of goes once again into that broken record of we don't want to show too much the technical specifications of the show because we worry that may alienate some people. But I kind of throw that back in the editor's face and say, let us find out if that's too much for us. Because to your point, that was a great defensive drivery. I don't know why I keep saying that word, but apologies there. But compare and contrast that with the last episode of the season. Checo Perez got a extended look at his defensive masterclass against Lewis in the very last race. Exactly. So to me, I think it would have been a perfect compa- companion piece. But because it doesn't necessarily suit the narrative or the plot lines that Netflix wants us to prioritize as viewers, we're not going to get it. I think that's the that's the interesting thing about episode eight right where it's like you're talking about george russell and going to mercedes the potential beef between he and valtteri botas the seat at mercedes you know valtteri eventually leaving 
I didn't, I don't think that, I don't think that the beef is, is as high strung as maybe they made it out to be. I think that they used the, the wreck on the, you know, on the next race or whatever it was um, to kind of play it up a little bit. Right. To, to say, Oh, maybe, you know, cause like, I think he says, Russell says, well, I don't know. Maybe it was intentional, right? Like maybe he thinks I was, uh, you know, whatever. Maybe he's still mad at me or whatever. Like part of that to me is, you know, you get to see into Valtteri Botas and who he has been for the last five years, right? You know, easily in one of the best cars on the track, yet consistently willing to play the team role, which, you know, means not winning as many races, which means giving up spots for Lewis, you know, defending for Lewis in many, many, many races. And I think you get to see it with, with, you know, Botas because it's almost like they're, they're justifying him getting the seat, you know, or staying in the sport. Right. Cause you don't, you don't really know he's, he's signed with uh, Alfa Romeo in this at all. Really. I don't think like if it's, if it's even mentioned, um, but that's the, that's the, that's the other part of the push and pull of being an F1 driver, right? Like knowing, you know, I think we get into it. I, I don't think it's this episode, but I think Toto talks about it at some point where it's like, look, he, and you know, he, he needs the team to win, you know, Lewis wants Lewis to win those things, you know, they don't always align. And that's the beauty of formula one and, and having teams and having, you know, two drivers on a team because you've got to, you've got to navigate that. And sometimes it takes forever for people to figure that out. Sometimes they don't figure it out at all. Sometimes they have their dad call in and say, I'm not going to give you any more money. So I, I'm not going to play anymore. I'm going to take my ball and go home. But like, I think that's like a missing piece, you know, to, to your point about um, Alonzo, like they should have shown that they, sh they showed it with, with other, you know, drivers. And I know to Todd made a great point about like kind of the aging aging out and the young guns and every, everybody in the sport. But, you know, with the exception of Kimmy, you're going to see all these guys in the sport. They're going to be in the paddocks. They're going to be in the garages. They're going to be on these teams, whether they're, you know, like they might not be driving, but there's no way that they won't be around racing. Like it's a part of who they are. And I think that's the other argument to, to include all these sub stories that exist and these behind the scenes things that make you know, that give Ocon, you know, his, his shot at winning his first race. I mean, maybe if we ever get the full 800 hours of footage, we can edit a show to our liking, but yeah, it's once again, it's a strange, strange season, but I think we've all come to grips with it. It's now it's just kind of bitching to one another and you, the listener. So, yeah, I want to just say one thing about the boat, boat test episode, um, because that one, I felt like one of the issues I had, and we, you guys both kind of just talked about it, but they were pretty fast and loose with the timeline there because they made it sound like the wreck in, where was it? Imola, I think it was. That were George and George tries to overtake Bottas and, and wrecks him out. And it absolutely was George's fault. Um, but they, that happened prior to like really any of the the talks happening and like the, the signing didn't happen till spa which was later in the season 
Um, so they were just kind of like fitting that narrative together. But also the uh, the thing that bothered me is they, if you're going to f- have a almost a full episode on Botas, like give him that redemption story at the end, because obviously the timeline doesn't matter to you. And like, talk about how he signed at alpha. Like they just completely left that out. And they're like, well, George gets a seat. Botas is, I don't know, lost in the ether. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's funny you mentioned that because of the four seasons, I can only think of one episode that was ever dedicated to Alpha. And maybe the when they were sober, they may have also gotten an episode. But yeah, as far as Netflix is concerned, if you're not a part of one of these seven teams, we really don't care. Because there was hardly any mention of Aston Martin this year, which I thought was very startling because of the fact that, A, how much you invested in season three, but also you have Seb Vettel, you have a British... Ferrari coming to a sport that is characteristically British and there's hardly any mention of it. So yeah, it just truly seems to be like, okay, these are the seven teams we like. So this is who we're going to give a visibility to. That's a great call. That's a great call. So we will use this opportunity to pour one out, so to speak for Michael Massey, because depending on what side of the argument you fall, this was either a great call or a horrible call to end the season the way that we did. So I know we've leaned on Todd to kind of lead off, but in this case, Nick, walk us through what your thoughts were for the last couple of episodes, because this is as dramatic of a finish as we've seen to a season ever. I think there will be three-hour documentaries on the last three weeks of, of last season at some point in our lifetime. Like People will dive so deep into this and create the story. And I, I think I said it in our text, but like Michael Massey... I don't think that the the stewards or Massey himself made, you know, 100% correct choices throughout the season. I think there was a ton of inconsistency. A lot of the people that I know that have watched Formula One for a while would all agree to that. But I think that, you know, seeing all of this in hindsight makes me realize just how much bullshit he has to sift through every moment of every race and to think about like all of those things, as I said in the text, you couldn't, I would not, you could offer me billions of dollars and I would not take that job in any way, shape or form. Like I just would not take that job because you're never going to make anyone happy. And you have to, you have to deal with all of these super type a plus personality, you know, think they're better than everyone else racers and, you know, team principles and you know all this and and i you know i don't think the decision i don't think it was it was right but you know like there was tons of stuff throughout the season that was definitely not right and you know the penalties that were assessed all of those things play into how these guys ultimately end the season in the last race so it's hard it's it's hard for me to look at the last race and think this is the one problem for the year and blame it on Massey specifically. But you know, it's it is what it is. It's it, I mean that's kind of how racing is, you know, and and I think the beauty of it kind of comes at the end of this whole you know, jumping ahead to to the last episode of of Drive to Survive. Toto at the end of it, you know, like kind of is like you see you see you know, um, Lewis Hamilton kind of walk off set and you don't see much more of him at all. And then you see Toto in the interviews saying everyone's going to have a target on their back. 
like this is the worst it's been and this is why we will be more motivated than ever and everyone has a target on their back and to me that's you know like yeah they're selling the dream of like competitive racing but that's how it is these guys take every single thing personally these guys remember every single thing some of the, one of the things i was going to bring up earlier that i forgot to i forget who it was but um i think it was daniel ricardo was like oh uh you know max cut me off in 2018 at that track and it's like how do you remember all these things you know you know what i mean like to a certain extent yeah you're going to remember like the massive stuff you're going to remember an accident or a wreck or you know maybe if you finished top three or something but like guys that have been racing for five to ten years remembering like specifically what corner they were cut off by one of the other drivers on the grid and like having toto say that at the end of this you know 10 10 episode season of drive to survive was just like the ultimate stamp of like yeah just fucking let's go racing like i'm ready like i just need the season to start and i'm ready for more drive to survive on top of it like you can dramatize all of it if you want just keep giving some good stuff in there like you know i feel like i'm i'm super biased at this point because the first two seasons were really great and if you watch the first two seasons i would bet money that you will become a formula one fan because the show was done so well that it it just elevated the sport in a way that I don't think we could have imagined as fans. Cause you just don't, once you're in it, you don't see it through, through an outsider's lens. And I think that's what, that's what the show did for those first couple of years. So uh, as far as the, the last two episodes specifically, yeah, I think, I think I would have sat through 10 episodes if they would have drawn it out for another 10 episodes to get through that last thing. And I would have had the same emotions. I was pissed. I was, you know, uh, they they all kind of know, like, both Max and Lewis drove well enough to deserve a championship last year. And it just depends on, on, on you know, what team your heart lies with to, to you know, really determine how you feel about the, the outcome of last year, in my opinion. I'll do my best, Max, and cut uh, Todd off right before. So then the <laughs> trick on that is you do it every episode, so you don't have to remember specific ones. But I digress. Todd, what do you think? Because I know you sent the text message of I'm ready to go 10, 15 minutes before we even got on because you clearly had some things you wanted to get off your chest. So we are giving you a flying lap, so to speak. Have at it, my friend. <laughs> okay. First thing I want to start with is the the – like if you watch Formula One races and last year was the first year that they ever broadcast the messages between the team principals and Michael Massey. And he's the most annoying sounding person. He'll you know, Toto checks in and it's like, you know, I, I, you know, you need to look at that, that pass or that turn or that whatever just happened. And, and he's just like, okay, Toto. He's the I'll perfect hall monitor. And he's just so he is he is like a hall monitor voice to the extreme and he's just you want to choke him but the best part about that is (laughs) horner's trying to like chum it up with him outside of in the paddock somewhere outside of race control whatever it was and he talks exactly the same way in person and he's like okay christian i i got i have to go just like, what is wrong with you but it made me so happy that he's like that in real life i want to say this 
I knew we were in trouble based on how they introduced him in the season because it's like if this isn't the most butter sounding person in the world, like hey fellas, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, butters is a great yeah, example like, too. The way I look at it, and I'll just quickly touch on this: what they should have done because they've been doing this with a lot of their series. Give me Drive to Survive, like eight episodes of everybody else, and then do part two of the season and focus exclusively on the title race. Give it five episodes, make sure your chronological events are accurately represented, because I think that is more exciting, more dramatic than anything they could have come up with. Anyway, back to you, Todd. No, no you, that's that's a great point. The This is where I'm going to poop all over the season. Like I said it earlier, they had the most dramatic season ever. And even in the most dramatic race of the most dramatic season ever, they kind of glossed over. I, I felt like I came away feeling that I th I thought like Nick, you mentioned it earlier. I thought I was going to come away from that feeling the same, not outrage because I'm a neutral. Like I, I, I said it in our, our group chat uh, text. Like I would have been just as stoked to see Max win his first championship as I would have been to see Lewis win his eighth. You said it earlier also, like he they were both absolutely deserving drivers um of winning that championship. Obviously they were. They went into that race even on points. For the first time in since like seventy six, I think, they went in the, the drivers went into the last last race even on points. Um but I felt shortchanged a bit. In that episode, they didn't dig into, like you mentioned earlier, right? Like all of the drama of that race and the buildup and the, the you know, the they kind of they talked about. I think it was that new street circuit a little bit. Um, so Soleil, Soleil, something like that, a little bit in that first race, and then they went to the the main race, and then they just kind of like were like. Oh, this and this happens, and there was, you know, a safety car, and then Latifi crashed, and um, I don't know. Maybe the race director bent the rules for the first time ever, like just randomly decided to let five cars through. Which, what, however you feel about it, like dig into that. It's the most dramatic thing with five laps left that's ever happened in Formula One, and they're like, yeah, this happened, and then Max won. And then the, the and then it comes back a little bit with that like the outro and then and Toto stuff that you mentioned that that like felt visceral and real to me, but like the actual race action and them explaining the drama of what happened in the race they like they're just kind of like here's the here's the cliff notes I, they did make a little uh uh special point about the defensive driving that Checo did um but then, like they, I, I I don't even know if they mentioned that he had to retire the car, which there was like actually yeah they did because of a puncture. Like you don't retire the car because of a puncture. Like I think he rang that car's neck, maybe you know, hurt the transmission or the engine or whatever by driving so hard and keeping Lewis behind, uh, or drain the uh, the Curtis system or something, whatever. But like you don't retire the car from a puncture unless that tire comes off and rips the side of your car yeah. off like you're not gonna oh yeah flat tire boohoo your race is over yeah anyway that that was such a letdown for me like the build-up of the season and all of the drama and they they touched on it in every episode like max versus lewis max versus lewis and then 
race director bends the rules to like essentially gift Max that race. Not, I'm not going to say championship because he was deserving of it, but I don't know. It felt like a letdown to me. And this, since we're talking about the last episode, this was the worst season of Drive to Survive by far, which is absolute shame because this was the best, or not best, but most dramatic season of Formula One we've had maybe ever. At very least, in a yeah, long time. I think I think the the struggle with that last episode and the last race and telling that story is that you would have to go into such depth to to tell it right and to get it all right because you know essentially you have you know like let's say forty five minutes to 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 tell this story right you know, give or take. Yeah. You can, you know, it's stretched into two episodes maybe, but like it's, it's a re- really limited um, amount of time. And to your point, you know, you mentioned Todd, like the 10 second penalty for Lewis was 30 some odd seconds of, of film time on drive to survive. Right. Like that's kind of, I wish I could shout out that tweet. I, I, I saw that tweet this weekend at some point, but some guy and bless, bless his heart just had a really like dry, sarcastic. This is drive to survives, you know, 10 second penalty at Silverstone. And it was 32 I mean, seconds. I was long. watching it with, with, with Cam it was and, amazing. and I, you know, I looked at her and I was like, this is the longest 10 second penalty I've ever seen, you know, as we're watching that it. Was, so uh, I was going to say that was longer than the longest pit stop in history, which was also 16 seconds at Mercedes. Cause that's what Toto Wolf taught us as well. So, yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I like my idea of you had breadcrumbs in every episode leading to this title race, which yeah, you should have done it. But at this point, give us six episodes of everybody else, take a half of extra half a year, edit it perfectly because I guarantee you five years from now, we will all be watching a 30 for 30 on this exact same subject. And we will all talk about how much it was done so much better than what we saw in drive to survive. And I do think that even reading some of the press clippings coming out of the formula one office, because that's the other thing we really didn't touch on. Domenico, uh, Stefano Dimicali, how do you ever pronounce his name? He was a main character this year in the show. And it was really worrisome to me from an editorial perspective that you were essentially bringing on the governing body and basically saying, yeah, these guys want a race. They want a competitive race. Don't give us that because then you ultimately already called into question the integrity of how you do your proceedings. And if I had to come up with a subtitle for this season, I would say it's the assassination of Lewis Hamilton by the coward Michael Messi. Because that's how it was. He made these decisions that were inconsistent, inaccurate at times, if we're going through the two letter of the law of the rule book. And somebody lost a world championship. But I think to Todd's point as well, Max was probably the better driver. So there is a bittersweet application of everything. But I was going to ask you guys this question. Give me your podium for most enjoyable people for this season. Oh yeah, uh, that's Gunther. Uh, Danny Rick when he says like one two nutsack three four. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, Nikita wow. Mazepin. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I'm going to. 
really it's Yuki, right? Because Yuki is the man child and he's just like living in filth and then driving a supercar for fun around a village. Still um, my life like, goals. If, if we're being honest, like I said earlier, Nikita. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. A Honda. Um, and yeah. you know, burritos. Um, it's, it's mine too. Um, but Nikita's episode was the most genuine thing that happened in that episode. Like he came off as a douche, but he is a douche. And like he, it was the most believable part yeah. of the entire. I mean, series. I think my top, my, my, you know, podium would be the same. Gunther is always the most entertaining. I think that uh, I like the, I like the back and forth between, uh, you know, Toto and, and Christian Horner, but it's just so. It's it's just harsh, like in a way that's like doesn't feel real to me. Like if they hate each other, they hate each other. But I also like, and it might have been mentioned in in this. Will Buxton might have mentioned it, but like they are so similar, right? Like they're, they're very similar in like their competitiveness, like everything they do. They do, yeah, because they did like the montage of of calling the kids at the last episode or whatever, right? But I think that, I, I like I would I would pose a question to you guys. I almost feel like Massey is the fall guy for the year. And I get that he is the one that's on the radio making the communications, but like, it's not him that's making all these decisions, right? In theory, this is a group of race stewards that are, you know, off camera, off mic, debating all these things. Granted, in a very short amount of time, you know, like there's a lot of things, you know, to, to the conversation around the last race, whether or not it was, done right or wrong or legal or illegal or changing the rules or, you know, or even like worth more of a, a deeper look for the, for the show drive to survive. Right. I, I think that he became the face of it. And I think that that was that as a fan, that seems very intentional by the owners, the, the F one, uh, you know, as a whole, like the company as a whole, right. Because if you can place the blame on, on him, then you can remove him and you can change the format. And now we're going to have, you know, in theory, a, a team of directors. We won't hear the radio communications, like all these things. But like, you know, I don't know. Like I, I, I came away from it feeling one sympathy for Massey because fuck being anywhere near that, that middle ground of all those people that are coming at you saying like, you know, as, as they're all saying in every episode, I'm just here. I'm just here as a team principal to, to manipulate the race as much as I can to better fit my team. Right. Like their goal is literally to manipulate Massey and his decision making, whether he was right or wrong on different occasions, you know, like, of course, we could debate that. But the other thing that I took away from it was, you know, the the I just don't want those people involved in the racing as much. Right. And it's tough because you want to see them, you want to see these teams win and you don't want to see e even the other teams, even not your team. Like I, I walked away from watching that thinking, man, Red Bull's been busting their balls, like really pushing for the last five to seven years, whatever it's been, you know, like they work their asses off and like, honestly, they probably did deserve to win last season. Max probably deserved to win. It sucks that he won in the way that he won because 
One, it takes away the legitimacy of his win for a lot of people. And two, it's just bad for the sport when officiating gets in the way, right? You know, like we could relate that to any of our other, you know, favorite sports. Me being a Kings fan, looking at the Lakers and Kings in the early 2000s and thinking like, well, the guy, the referee that bet on the games was officiating these games and somehow the Kings lost, right? So I can't not think those things. It's almost like that comment about Russell had about, about Valtteri. Once it's in your head, you're thinking about how these things influence people's decisions, thought processes and, and actions. And Formula One is is so reliant on literally like thousands of a second decision making that you know you can't you know it just it's just crazy how much all of those little things are going to affect the trajectory of the sport even you know yeah i i think you summed it up great there and the one thing that i want to call special attention to that you said nick is Michael Massey didn't screw this up by himself. He absolutely was the reason, the cause, the uh, problem in Abu Dhabi in the end there. Like, call you know, struggling to call the safety car and then waffling on his decision about letting the lapped cars overtake and then bending the rules about which lapped cars could overtake and not all of them. And I know they had this kind of gentleman's agreement about um, they don't want to see the race end under a safety car. They want to get like end under racing action. But then if that's the gentleman's agreement, red flag the race. If anything happens where like a critical decision or, or battle between drivers is, is on the line, just red flag the race, give everyone Everyone gets to change tires, give everyone a fighting chance. They're all backed up. You took away Lewis's lead, so be it, whatever. But the things that they didn't talk about is the the races lead like Silverstone, they I think they probably screwed up Hamilton's only 10 second penalty. Um in Brazil, when Max or like in the very first race of the season, when Max overtakes uh Lewis on the outside of the track. And then he has to give the place back, and then he can't fight back after that. Lewis, the, the the toxicity of Twitter has burned into my head that during that race, Lewis uh, yeah. went wide on that corner 29 times in that whole race. Like, I, I can't forget that number now because of that. But, like, then the um, the Brazil no decision – or not – yeah, was it Brazil? Brazil. Uh, Brazil, no decision for Max pushing Lewis wide. Um, there was just so many errors by not only Michael Massey, but also the stewards during the season that they, as you mentioned, like had a chance to explore further and, you know, dramatize for the sake of form, uh, for Drive to Survive, but they didn't. They just like set him up to be the fall guy. And then they're, and then he just, again, is just lost into the ether and they don't talk about you know, next season. I know a lot of stuff just happened, but they, they they didn't talk about the next generation of car. They didn't talk about anything coming up and just, I don't know, felt empty a little bit. think that, so, so you, you kind of alluded to it, but red flag the race and, and let them get fresh tires and let them run. You know, this was the first year that we've seen the, uh, the sprint race qualifying, right? 
I would never think of, of, you know, formula one as a, or any racing to, to, to be determined on these like short races. Um, but I, I also walked away from, you know, finishing drive to survive thinking like, man, if they would have just stopped the race and let Max and Lewis run one lap on, you know, new tires, it would have been everything we all were waiting for without the questions in our mind as to like how it played out. And I know that seems kind of crazy to think like, you know, you're going to, you're going to basically pin the entire season on one race or one lap potentially, or whatever it ends up being. Right. Maybe it's a two lap thing or something, but like, I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. So maybe that is something that becomes a way that they deal with these types of things in the future. You know, again, to your point, going into the last race tied, you know, two drivers tied for the, for the points and, and battling it out, you know, hasn't happened since the seventies. So probably not likely that we're going to run into a scenario like this ever again, or at least in our lifetimes, but uh, it definitely made me think about like how they could better do that. And, you know, I, I also totally, I, I am one of those fans that would be pissed if it, if it ended under yellow, right? Like I hate that, especially when I go to races like there's nothing worse than having a race finish under yellow where like there's just no competition for the last few laps because as much as like this race became a two person show and we only really cared about the two guys there's all the other elements of like Latifi crashing for instance being the reason that we're even having this conversation essentially right and like that to me is is like worth revisiting regardless of who's in charge of it i think as you know, as an organization, Formula One should probably look at that and and figure out better ways to move forward, in my opinion. And we'll use this opportunity to move forward to the next episode. We're at 90 minutes, so I wanted to use this opportunity to thank both of my co-hosts because there was a lot to unpack this season. And I do think that we may be coming into a bit of a letdown here because once you've reached the highest of this sport like we did last year it's going to be very hard to top so that being said it's time for everybody's favorite rhyming portion of the show so go ahead todd let us know where they can find you on social media at tz on instagram at jack handy 11 or hack jandy 11 on twitter i'm at rohizi on twitter at rohadm13 on instagram i was not at madwatcher789 that's our dear friend mike uh, gillery from the sneaker history podcast <laughs> and i know somebody else on the sneaker history podcast and that's nick engvall nick where can they find you i am at nick engvall on all the platforms but uh more importantly just connect with us in the discord we'll leave it in the links the description for this episode talk to us more about what you thought of last season of the races of drive to survive of us anything like were we good hosts like, related, what did really? you want to hear more yeah. about yeah <laughs> yeah exactly we love the feedback we love the conversation so all right y'all well as as road said 90 plus minute episode but i think drive to survive it's probably worth probably worth a long episode to review it even if most of it was just complaining about it we really do just we're just we just love the sport we want to see it portrayed yeah. in the best way possible Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. <laughs> Peace. Mm-hmm.